thought about how to begin this sermon about ten different ways. <clears throat> I shared with uh, the worship team this morning before we walked out here, we usually spend some time, short time, in prayer together before we actually step in here. And um, shared with them that I'm um, just kind of a grunt this morning. I was all day yesterday. And um, that uh, <clears throat> the contrast between the world decompressing on a holiday week and every pastor who's got to preach on Sunday not decompressing, it just kind of made me selfish and grumpy. <laughs> Add insult to injury, Satan really, <clears throat> I give him some credit for some things that he may not should take credit for. I've mentioned this before that oftentimes my Saturdays are really frustrating because I feel like he really works on me saying, ah, they won't care. This just doesn't impact, intersect their Tuesdays or Thursdays, our weeknights, our dens. They won't care. <laughs> <clears throat> Sometimes I give him credit for something that may be God. I'm not saying God would say that. But the same God that had Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, record the state of Israel in the book called Amos. Could be the same God that's saying, man, call these people to a genuine walk every single week. See, the condition of the nation of Israel in the book of Amos was that they were real religious. They went to Gilgal. They'd make these pilgrimages and have these feasts and these real religious times together. But their hearts were far from them. They knew what to say. They knew how to go through the motions. But that's why all they were doing was going through the motions. And they would... Say, come Lord Jesus, come, sort of language. And I mean, obviously not saying come Lord Jesus, come at that time. Maybe they did for the first time. But listen to these words in Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> Don't turn there, just listen. It says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You could just insert you bunch of relig religious people. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. See, man, we can think we're just involved in this church thing and we're avoiding hell, not realizing that we've got a lion to face, or a, excuse me, a bear to face. Or a man who went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Reminds me of the bed that I slept in growing up in my parents' house. The house, house was built in 1857 in central Louisiana. And I slept by an upper window. And this upper window was a place where wasps could come in. You know, windows on an old, old house, they're just, they have holes everywhere. Wasps would come in and they would get in my bed. And I would slip under the covers at night, a place that I think is a place of retreat and comfort. And get stung by a wasp in my own bed. That's the picture here. He goes home and leans against the wall thinking, oh man, we got it going on. And gets bit by a serpent. 
It's not the day of the it's not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Some of those Saturdays could be Satan. Some of those Saturdays could be God saying, call this people to a genuine walk week after week after week. Do you know how easy it is for us to land there? You know how easy it is for us to just go through the motions and just get our church on? If Satan does one thing, he lies to me about this. Well, it could be true though. That's why I'm not sure if it's Satan. Is it most people just want a place to go to church? Just give me a place to go to church. Man, what's with all this stuff, this accountability and this being part of each other's lives and this hard verse-by-verse preaching, these long sermons. Just give me a place to go to church. That's what I wrestle with on Saturdays. That's what most people are looking for. But then I read this and go, no, we've got to be faithful and true to be what God says we're called to be and to engage Him rightly because you can engage Him or think you're engaging Him and all the while be leaning against the wall saying, ah, it's all good and have a a run-in with a bear or a serpent because you didn't engage Him rightly. It's especially appropriate that today we begin this sermon this way because we're considering the Lord's Supper today. Something that's so easy to get wrong. I'm going to pray that we engage it rightly and I'm going to pray, pray that we are all there. That any of us that might be here just, I'm just looking for a place to go to church. That God will change your heart. And that this morning, these next few minutes, you'll say, I want to be part of a people. And I want to sit at the feet of God. And see what God says about what it means to eat with God. That we'll together do the hard work of engaging Him rightly in the next few minutes. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first of all, I want to pray for Ralph Powell. I want to pray for Fellowship Bible Church. Pray for a brother who is um, hopefully bringing the word this morning, just even as we sit here, that... The church is engaging you, Lord. I pray that they are engaging you rightly. I pray for Ralph and his worship, that it is overwhelmed with wonder and awe. I pray that he is doing the hard work of mountain climbing and that he is bringing the goods down each week to a people who are attentive and hungry and eager to hear what you've said. Lord, I thank you for his ministry. I pray for your grace and your mercy on him. I pray for endurance. Pray that you'll give him eyes that walk and preach and pastor and shepherd by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray for this people this morning that we will engage you rightly. Lord, I pray that you will guard our hearts from ever just going through the motions and just getting our religion on. But that we can be about good and fine and true religion that engages you rightly. Lord, I pray this, and I know the elders would agree with me in this prayer. 
Lord, I pray that we will be 20 strong, 50 strong, and be true, engaging you rightly, than thousands strong and going through the motions. Lord, refine us, grow us in you, open our eyes this morning to what it means to eat with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The last few weeks, we've been engaging a series of messages on the church. We're in a community that I've heard is the most highly saturated church community in the world. I've heard that. I haven't seen evidence for that. But I do know that there are 98 Christian churches serving about 25,000 people. And that there are very few people, really, when you consider that sort of saturation, very few people actually in church. I also know that just because there's lots of church buildings doesn't necessarily mean that there's lots of biblical church. And I don't want us to be about the business of driving around saying, you're a church, you're not, you're a church, you're not. But I do want us to be informed about what God says church is so that we can both be the church and so that we can plant the church and that we can minister to the existing church abroad. We need to be able to discern where the church is absent or weak. And in order to do that, we need to know what God says the church is. So we've been building a sentence, a definition of what the church is. It's been, I don't know, 12, 10, 12 sermons by now. The church is an accountable people who are led and leadable, taught and teachable, loved and loving, a baptized people. That's where we've gone the last couple of Sundays. Where we're going today, a supping people. A couple weeks ago, we took a new look at baptism. And I realized that I, I confess this to y'all, I realized that I, and likely many of you, am a parachuter. That we parachute into the New Testament, and maybe we parachute into the Jordan, and maybe we study what John the Baptist was doing. And maybe we look at it closely, and we walk away and think we've got a handle on it. We recognize that it's important. We recognize that it means something. And we may even reproduce it and go do more of the same, but yet not really get it. Because we were parachuters. And that a wise parachuter needs to talk to somebody on the ground to find out what happened before you got there. So that's what we did the last couple of weeks, is we talked to somebody on the ground, and really where we went, spent most of our time, was in the Old Testament. And we see a God that's been baptizing his people for thousands of years. We see a God that's been washing his sacrifices for thousands of years. We see a God who's washing his priests. And then we come back to the Jordan with a new set of eyes and say, now I get it. We see God delivering his people through a watery ordeal and we say, now we get it. That's what we're going to do with the Lord's Supper in these next two weeks, this Sunday and next Like our journey into the Old Testament to understand baptism, we'll journey back today to the Old Testament to get the rest of the story on this thing that we do weekly. As this unfolds over the next couple of weeks, this week and next, I hope and pray that you'll see why this is part of the church series. I hope and pray that you'll see that it's what the people of God do. This Sunday, I'm going to engage four things that the supper is. And then next week, I'll engage four or five things. First of all, the Lord's Supper is a supper of provision. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> if 
Lord's Supper is a supper of provision. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. <clears throat> and God blessed them, them being man. He made mankind and Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what's called the cultural mandate. The Christian version of this would be the Great Commission. And God said, Behold, notice that word, Behold, Adam and Eve, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now look at the next chapter, chapter 2. Verse 8, this is sort of a micro picture of what just happened. It's greater detail of God interacting with this newly created man. Chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now look down at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, where we've spent most of our time in this passage, it's likely familiar to most, if not all of you, is considering the boundaries, considering the two trees are this ample setting and then this tree that's off limits. What I want to do is just kind of consider the big picture there that this God created something, created this earth in six days. He created this garden that's full of all kind of great things to eat. And essentially what he says to mankind is he's inviting Adam and Eve to come enjoy the fruit of, pun intended, of my labor. Come enjoy the fruit of my work. Some words that I especially enjoy, enjoy there is the word behold. Behold, I've made all these things. Come, take, and eat. Another word that I enjoy is the word surely you can eat from all of this stuff. Come, take, and eat. God invites Adam and Eve to enjoy the fruit, pun intended, of his work. Now look at Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 18, focusing more though in verses, in, beginning in verse 20. But just for the sake of context. So Noah went out on dry ground. This is after the flood. The waters have subsided. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Here, crunch, crunch, crunch. A watery ordeal, yet another delivered Another example of God's people delivered through a watery ordeal to dry ground, crunch, crunch, crackle. Verse 20. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is, I wish it said was, but it says is, evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, watch the cultural mandate again. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is why we know this is a recreative work. It sounds just like the first creation. He's recreating right here. And he says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Same sort of tone and same sort of characteristics as this first conversation with Adam and Eve, except it's here with Noah and his family. Come and take and eat. Enjoy the fruit, pun intended, of my recreative work. It's delivered into your hand every living thing that moves. Take and eat. It sounds a lot like Joshua chapter 1. Turn there. Joshua chapter 1. Let me give you a picture, just a little brief context. The book of Joshua picks up where the nation of Israel crosses over the Jordan into the promised land. Just big picture, the nation of Israel has been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt God calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues, the final which is the Passover. They leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They go to the wilderness. They go to Sinai. And then they spend the next 40 years wandering around the wilderness. And here's where they cross over dry ground of the Jordan into the promised land. Pick up in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Listen. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Somebody could insert in there the tone of what is unfolding right here. Take and eat, Joshua. And the nation of Israel. Go on in. Take and eat. From the wilderness in this Lebanon. As far as the great river. And the river Euphrates. And the land of the Hittites. To the great sea. Toward the going down of the sun. Shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you. All the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The tone of this so far is take and eat. Take possession of what I earned for you. But now I want you to hear the sprinkling on this, the seasoning on this take and eat. 
the language of covenant. In verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that, my Moses, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. In this context of God providing ample provision for his people, there's also this language, a sprinkling covenant. Now what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? What I want you to see in the Lord's Supper is that when we dine on the Lord's Supper, we are dining and enjoying the fruit of His labor. We're enjoying the fruit of God taking on flesh and God living a sinless life. God the Son. And God the Son teaching and preaching and healing and multiplying loaves and fishes. And God the Son going to a cross that He didn't rate. Taking a beating, taking a crucifixion that was due us. And then being buried and resurrected. We are enjoying, when we dine on this Lord's Supper, we are enjoying His ample provision from His finished work. Like Adam and Eve should have done. Walking around eating, gnawing on all that fruit. Surely you can eat from any of it. Behold, take and eat. Noah and your family, anything you put your hand to, every beast is yours. Take and eat. Nation of Israel, go take and eat. And the Lord's Supper is a meal of provision. When we dine on the body and the blood of Christ... We are taking in his finished work and enjoying his ample provision. I want you to see, though, in each of these settings, though, I'm going to move on to this next point that the supper is. But before I do that, I want you to see the connection to this point. I want you to see that so far we've got those sprinklings of covenant. I want you to see that there are boundaries to these meals. There's boundaries to every offering. Adam, take and eat. Surely you can eat from any tree, but don't eat from that one. Noah, take and eat from any of it, but don't eat of anything that has the lifeblood in it. Joshua and the nation of Israel, take and eat. Move into houses that you didn't build, but don't turn from the left or the right. Keep following me. See, boundaries and obedience go with provision. Covenant and provision go together. With provision comes responsibility because our God will not be mocked. The second thing, the Lord's Supper is a covenant supper. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. First is the Lord's Supper is a supper of provision with sprinklings and covenant. Now we consider the Lord's Supper is a covenant supper. We're going to go to the guy that is just kind of the covenant guy. The guy you think of when you think of God's covenant. guy named, in this case, at this point, we're about to read is a man named Abram, later Abraham. Listen to this interaction that God has with this chosen man, Abram. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's an old man, him and his wife, Sarai, at that point. Barren. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look up, Abram. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, said, I, but he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to, him, said to Abram, know for certain that you're offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions as for yourself you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made, watch this, a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, Abram, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What I want you to see right up front there is this picture. Is God is making a covenant with a man named Abram. God, first of all, moved a man named Terah, his dad. A guy that likely worshipped the moon. The fact that the wives' names somehow point to moon worship tells us these were not worshippers of God when God called them. And God called Terah to load up his family. And they moved to Haran. They left her Ur of the Chaldeans and moved to Haran. And that's where he called Abram to go to Canaan. And God would make of Abram a great nation. And it's an interesting promise since Abram and Sarai were both barren. He says he's going to make them as numerous as the stars. Now watch what happens in chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Just take in the picture here. Abram and Sarai are following God's instructions. They've gone to this land that they've never seen. They're trusting God on his promises. They still have no child. Look what happens here. God shows up with two partners. We don't know who the partners were, but God the Son likely. We don't know. It's God. God shows up in human form. And Abram lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. 
And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Take in who he's dining with. God is eating with his covenant partner. They said to him, lips smacking, hear this setting. They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, oh, oh, she's in the tent. She's probably recovering from making that bread that quick. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She wasn't even capable of having kids. So Sarah snickered to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Oh, no, but you did. (laughs) Then the men set out from there. Watch this. The men, they head towards Sodom and Gomorrah. They set out from there and they look down towards Sodom. And Abraham tagged along with them after this meal. He went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said to himself, it's almost like God's having a conversation with himself. Listen to what he says. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I keep him in the dark? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation and a mighty na- or great and mighty nation, and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He's remembering his own covenant with Abraham. For I have chosen him that he may con- command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, what I want you to see in this context, this chapter, chapter 18, is that God is dining with his people. It's a micro people at this point. It's Abraham and Sarah and their slaves and their tagalongs. And God shows up and has a meal with them and gives them much more than just a baby announcement. He gives them a promise. He connects them with the covenant where he took Abram outside and said, look up. The number of your kids will be as number as the stars. And that's where Sarah snickers and says, yeah, right. And then that's not all that happens in this context. God also reveals his plans to his people. He takes Abraham, the tagalong, off to Sodom. And he, am I going to keep one of my people in the dark? Or am I going to let them in on what's in store? And why did he do that? Because he reminds himself because he's one of mine. Because I chose him for righteousness so that I may bring Abraham all that, he's, all that I've promised him. These words that he shared where God is speaking with himself. He says, am I going to hide from one of mine what I'm about to do? For I've chosen him that, I may command, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. That could be said at every single Lord's Supper. 
In fact, we're going to say it later this morning when we take the Lord's Supper. Here, centered around a meal, we find God fulfilling His promise to make of Him a great nation. Here, centered around a meal, we find God letting His people in on His plan because He chose Him for righteousness. See, we need to remember some how many thousands of years after this event. We need to remember that we're part of a deal with God. We're engaged in a relationship with God, an agreement with God that He initiated. And just like He chose Abraham, He chooses us for righteousness. Just like He chose Abraham to teach His children the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice, the same thing He's done with us. And just like Abraham responded with the righteousness he was chosen for, we are to respond with the righteousness that we're chosen for. And the supper reminds us of that connection. As we eat with our covenant God, provision and covenant go together. Look at Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. (laughs) Provision and covenant go together and the meal is a good place for us to put them together. Watch this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I don't know if you're paying attention to the connection to the passage that we just read in Genesis chapter 18, but you should For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. This passage has done much to shape our children's ministry and our view of what that is. Our children's ministry, the main ingredient of it, is to teach and equip you to do what God is saying here. To do what God did with Abraham. To do what God did with Israel. That God does that with us. You shall bind these things as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And watch. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, watch, with great and good cities that you did not build, take and eat. When he takes you into this land that have houses full of all good things that you did not fill. Here, take and eat. And with cisterns that you did not dig, take and drink. And vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full and are burping, enjoying his provision... Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you eat and are full, when you're enjoying his provision, 
Remember to not forget your God. We must connect provision to covenant around smacking lips and full bellies. They go together. And this covenant meal, our version of it, called the Lord's Supper, is a place to remember that. I'll share a passage with you. I don't want you to turn there. But just listen, Isaiah 53, verse 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Here, take and eat. Enjoy the fruit of his finished work. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Covenant and provision go together. And the Lord's Supper is a great time to put them together as you take and eat. Now, the third thing. Lord's Supper is a supper of deliverance. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Let me give you a little context. Just like God promised to Abraham... In the same context where he had that dream and that vision, he said, you're going to, I'm going to make a great nation from you and that nation is going to be under the hand of someone else and I'm going to deliver them. This is where it actually happens. The nation of Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years. Really, they're born in Egypt in the fiery furnace, the heavy hand of Egypt under slavery. And God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And he does that through mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. And here we pick up in chapter 12 at the last plague. Listen to what unfolds. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. It's sort of like a recreation. Things are going to start over right here. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Don't get no ugly lamb. Don't get a leftover. Don't get some old homely thing. Go get your finest lamb without blemish. A male, a year old, you'll take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in hand. And you shall eat it in haste. 
It's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass, I, God, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what's leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what's leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So then Moses calls all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he's promised you, you shall keep this service And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. I think it's hard for us... This was likely about 1,500 years ago. It's so easy for us to pass over this and just read this as just a story that's ancient, is dusty, has no relevance to us. But man, the best thing that ever happened to the faith 2,000 years after Christ is to climb into this context and to become a bunch of little Jewish families so that we can get the dynamics. This story of the Exodus is our story. These plagues, if you engage the book of Revelation, that also dusty book, you see so many things in common. You see the tribulation is going to look a lot like this. And God, just like he did here, is going to say, come out of her, my people. But we've got to climb in this story as a bunch of little Jewish families. Shepherds, fathers, or single moms, just for a moment. Be a little Jewish man. Be a little Jewish man that saw this, that saw the whole center of civilization 
in this time? The whole Nile, which a river system is going to be the center of everything. Be a little Jewish man that saw the Nile turn not just to red, but turn to blood. Where fish float up to the top. Where flies congregate. Be a little Jewish man that has calluses because you've been in slavery ever since you can even remember. Making bricks. That your daddy and your daddy's daddy and your daddy's daddy's daddy was a slave also. That your mom is a slave as well. Be a Jewish man with stripes across your back. Because you've been beaten by the Egyptians. Be a Jewish man and consider the the blood red Nile. Consider the, the, the other plagues, the frogs that are so thick. When you get out of your bed, you step on frogs. When you roll over in your bed, you lay on frogs. Be a little Jewish man that can envision gnats that are so thick you have to cover your face so you don't breathe them. Be a little Jewish man that sees the flies, that sees livestock littering the hillside because they drop dead in God's judgment. Be a little Jewish family that saw darkness that was so thick you could feel it. Be a Jewish family that saw the nation of Israel walking around with boils all over them. Be a Jewish family that saw hail and locusts and saw all these things unfold. And then when God says, here's the last plague. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to go get. I want you to go get the finest of your flock and unblemished. Would you pay attention? Would it be some story that's outside of you? Or would you go, what did he say? Man, where's my finest? Let me go find my finest unblemished lamb. And let me bring him into the house. And let him run around the house for eight days. So the whole family can experience the life of the animal. Maybe we name it Fluffy. Be a Jewish man that has a sharp knife. That with the other shepherds, with the other leaders, with the other elders, with the other family heads of every Israelite family in Egypt. Takes that sharp knife and takes that little fluffy and slits its throat at twilight. Be a Jewish man that feels the blood spurting all over your hands. Be a Jewish man that grabs a hyssop branch, slathers it up in that blood, takes the doorpost, slathers it up, Takes the lentils, slathers it up. Be a Jewish mama. That then takes that sharp knife and skins that lamb out. And then cooks it whole. With herbs. Just like he said to. Be a Jewish mom that takes unleavened bread. And you're careful to make sure there's no leaven in it. Because God said... Be a Jewish family that's sitting around the table eating this lamb, fluffy. Be a Jewish family that has your loins girded. Loins girded. Your skirt-like clothing. You gather it up. You dip it in your, your, your belt so you can skedaddle. Be a Jewish family that has a fork in one hand, a staff in the other. 
And they're sitting there eating that lamb and that bread while you hear the wind and wing of the destroyer passing by your blood-slathered door. Be a Jewish family that hears your Egyptian neighbors shriek. Be a Jewish family that hears your Egyptian neighbors shriek when mama rolls over to her husband who happens to be the firstborn in his family and he's dead. Who gets up shaken and goes to check on her son who's the firstborn in that family and he's dead in his crib. Who runs to the kitchen and stumbles over their pet who's the firstborn in their litter and he's dead. Be a Jewish family that says, oh, this meal is good. This God is good that gave me this meal, that gave me this lamb and this blood to slather my door so that I was passed over. Let's 2,000 years after Christ, 3,500 years after this event, let's climb into this story and let it affect us so that when we take the supper, we hear the wind and wing of the destroyer. And know that we've been delivered because Paul said Christ is our Passover lamb. And man, his blood slathers over our doorposts. And take that meal and enjoy God's deliverance. Man, we could do with some wind and some wing. We could do with imagining a destroyer that passes over, hearing our lips smack in gratitude as we enjoy his provision. As we enjoy fluffy. I wonder if David was thinking of this night when he wrote these words in Psalm 23, You prepare before me a table in the presence of my enemies. supper we share together is a supper of deliverance we could do with some wind and some wing it might change our Tuesdays it might change our dens it might change the attitude that men have in engaging their families with things that matter it might impact what happens here in these next few minutes as we pass out the elements that we have a healthy sweet fear of God and a great thankfulness for our Passover lamb, knowing what we've been delivered from. We could do with some blood on the lentils, being reminded exactly what saves us, the blood of our Passover lamb. Supper is a supper of deliverance. And lastly, the supper is a supper of grace and mercy. Turn to 2 Samuel verse 9, or chapter, chapter 9, excuse me. Want some, I want y'all to consider the table that you likely sat at this week. We were with family pretty much all week. But Thursday, two different sides of our family all week. But Thursday we were with my side of the family sitting at a large table. Enjoying likely some of the things that you enjoyed this week at your table. Fellowship, 
memories. Isn't it funny? Sitting, dining with family, things come up. Remember when this happened? Remember that? Enjoying peace. Now some of you going, you don't know my family. I bet when you sat at that table and people started eating, I bet just for a moment, it was peace. Even if your family is World War III, at that table there was peace. There was fellowship. There are memories. And there's family. Now keep those in mind as I share this story. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is the second king of Israel. Saul was the first. Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, had a son named Mephibosheth. In this day and age, whenever someone became a new king out of a different family, the norm was to take every member of the old family and kill them for fear that that old family could kind of create an uprising that could take back the throne. David was not part of Saul's family. Saul died on the battlefield as well as Jonathan. And then David became king. And what would have been the norm is let's gather up the rest of Saul and Jonathan's family and let's kill them. That's what they're due. But it must have been a slow day at the palace. David's sitting around in chapter 9 and he says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? You could imagine how it could go because let's have a celebration and kill him in front of everybody. Let's have a public hanging or something. But David says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Dropped as a baby. Who knows how bad it was? Was he, did he have to drag himself around? Did he just shuffle? The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And the king sent him and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, now an orphan, son of Saul, comes to David and He fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth knew what he deserved. He knew what the norm was. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I've given to your master's grandson, this cripple. 
And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Here, take and eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 27 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth shuffled, dragged himself, came in and ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. I don't know if there's a sweeter story in our Bibles. I don't know if there's a sweeter connection to the Lord's Supper because we eat as a bunch of crippled Mephibosheths. We eat as a bunch of people that aren't supposed to be eating with the king. It's a mercy that we would even be spared. But then it's a scandal that we're escorted into the king's table and we're seated like we're one of his sons with full rights and privileges. That's the scandal of the table. And that's the scandal of the Lord's Supper. We're not just spared to survive, but we're saved to dine and fellowship and enjoy the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me tell you something. When a church becomes a bunch of Mephibosheths, you're talking about a sweet, sweet, sweet people. It's when we forget who we are that things get ugly. When we remember who we are and what we rate, and we shuffle in a bunch of cripples, and we take that meal with thankfulness. And we know that it's grace and mercy that we can even put it to our lips. We're not supposed to be eating with God. Supper. A supper of provision. It's a covenant supper. It's a supper of deliverance. It's a supper of grace and mercy. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And we're going to remember these things now newly informed. Let's dine. Let's enjoy the fruit of His labor, His finished work. Fruit of hope and peace and salvation. Let's remember this new, rich, perfect, scandalous covenant that we live and walk in. Let's remember what lordship means. While we enjoy his grace, while we bathe in the reality that he makes good on his promises. Let's remember that he'll not hide from us what he's about to do. We know he's going to return and judge the quick and the dead. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, 
so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Take and eat. Let's remember together our deliverance from bondage, our protection from the wind and wing of the Holy Destroyer, behind doors slathered with our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's remember with Mephibosheth that it's an indescribable grace and mercy that God would invite us to his table. We're supposed to be condemned to hell for our sin, but he made a way in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And by that way, we sit and eat and dine and fellowship with our God. Take and drink. God, I pray that I pray that you find us people who have climbed into these stories. I pray that you find us people who have hunkered down behind blood slathered doors and who have a healthy fear for your holiness and your justice who understand how corrosive and contaminating sin is and understand why that death is the appropriate outcome. I pray that you'll find a bunch of people that recognize that it was by the blood of another that we survived that night and that our other was one who bowed his perfect head and took our blows and took our nails and took our beating and bore our sin and shed his blood that cleanses us. Lord, I pray that you'll find us a bunch of Mephibosheths that are scandalized by the fact that we sit at a table because of this perfect head's work. We sit at a table that we don't deserve, that we will never deserve. I pray that you will find us such a lowly, teachable, humble people that the world will look at that people and say they're not like us. Lord, I pray that our aroma of Christ to you will will be sweet because we look like Christ. Because we dine on him. Because we engage him rightly. Because we approach the table like cripples. Maybe being carried to the table. Lord, I pray that's something that invades our Tuesday. Invades our marriages. Invades our relationships. We could be so demanding about so many things where we make ourselves God so quickly. I pray that we'll be a people that are just so arrested with these realities that you'll find us different between Sundays. I pray that we'll be a people who won't bring sounds to you that's just noise but that our song will come from hearts that truly are amazed. Song from lips 
that give you praise between Sundays. I pray that our offerings to you, our time that we dedicate to you, our uncomfortable moments with people, doing things that are outside of us and beyond us, will be offerings that are appropriate in response to what you've already done. Lord, I pray this table will just shape us. Thank you so much for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.